Welcome to Required Listening. I'm your host, Scott Goldman, Executive Director of the Grammy Museum. Every week, we talk to artists, songwriters, and producers at every level, from emerging to legendary, across every genre, in front of a live audience in the Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum. The discussions are intimate, personal, and completely unscripted. These conversations never fail to surprise me, and I think you'll feel the same way. At the Grammy Museum, we run a series called Real to Real. We screen documentaries on music-related topics. And following the screenings, we speak with the principals involved about the film and their role in bringing it to life. Recently, we screened an episode of the Grammy-nominated documentary, The Defiant Ones. Today on Required Listening, you'll hear my post-screening discussion with the director, Alan Hughes, and one of the film's subjects, Jimmy Ivey. Ivey is arguably one of the most successful figures in music. He began his career as a young studio engineer, working with John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, and Patti Smith. He went on to produce many great artists, including Tom Petty's breakout albums in the late 70s and early 80s. He went on to found Interscope Records, signing new artists and becoming deeply involved in the burgeoning alternative rock scene. Alan Hughes made his directorial debut, along with his brother Albert, at age 21 with the gangster epic Menace to Society. The brothers went on to direct Dead Presidents, American Pimp, From Hell, and The Book of Eli. Jimmy Allen and I had an inspiring and often hilarious conversation. If you've seen The Defiant Ones, this will give you an insider's view of what goes into making a Grammy-nominated documentary. If you haven't, this is a terrific introduction. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my conversation with Alan Hughes and Jimmy Ivey. Please welcome the director of The Defiant Ones, Alan Hughes. And a man whose decades-long career has always been about risk-taking, innovation, and pushing music forward. Please welcome Jimmy Iovine. Got some ringers in the audience, Jimmy. What's that? I said, you got some ringers in the audience. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> what comes after my name is not Dre. <laughs> <laughs> not, not true at all. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Scott. For taking the time. Tell me, first of all, how did you guys meet? How did you meet? Uh, I think I... <laughs> he doesn't remember. I met him when me and my brother were doing some Tupac videos when we were 19. Uh-huh. Um, and Interscope, Interscope was just getting hot at the time. So I briefly met Jimmy because we weren't hot enough to sit in his office yet. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Just kind of walking Just by. Just walked by and I waved. And then a few years later, after Menace and after Dead Presidents, um, had a, a a record label with Jimmy for yeah. about four years, yeah. And he financed American Pimp as well, yeah. You um you had a, a long relationship with Dre. Yeah. Long relationship. And this actually began as a documentary about him. Yeah. So, so tell me about how this transitioned to the Defiant Ones. Well, I worked with Dre in a video with Eminem called I Need a Doctor. We did somewhat of a career retrospective. I had an idea to kind of like remind people, you know, where he came from and how long he's been in the game. And then afterwards he asked me, he goes, do you think my life would make an interesting story? And I'm like, you've lived the life of 10 men, you know? Yeah. I'll call HBO. Called HBO, the president of HBO, pitched him. He greenlit it over the phone. And then he said, we have one problem. I said, what's that? He said, we just greenlit an Interscope documentary with Jimmy Ivey. I said, I'll call you right back. 
because <laughs> that light bulb went off, you know, because yeah. knowing Jimmy so well yeah. and knowing Dre so well. And at that time, Beats was like 2013. Beats was just the most prominent brand on the planet. Yeah. So it was obvious. So when he called you, what did you say? Uh, well, I had canceled the Interscope documentary like two or three times already because, you know, I kept asking my friends, I said, do you, should I do this thing? And they kept saying, why would you do this? You know, because... It went by, it happened, and it went well, and it, nothing crashed. He said, but you go back and dig it up, you don't know what's going to happen in there. Because Interscope mm. in the 90s was a really rough place, you know. So I canceled it like two or three times. And uh, then Alan came along, and I said yes to that, and then we canceled that. We had a green light, and then he canceled it for a year. He wouldn't do it. Yeah, because I just... I just didn't want to go back there because there was a lot of stuff that went on that just was, you know, it was just a pain, a pain in the ass. You know? Well, well, well not, not, not only that, but I mean, you've, <laughs> talked, you've talked and you've been very open about the, the conflict around your role and the feuds in rap in the 90s. Well, the whole thing with Time Warner, the whole thing yeah. was uh, just, uh, just was a nightmare. So I said, why am I doing this? You know, why? Why? My main question every day for myself is why. And if I get a good answer for myself, I do it. And if I don't, I don't. Hmm. Right? That's how I live my life every day. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know? And um, so I couldn't come up with a good reason. But then I did come up with a good reason. Because my, my dear, great partner and friend was willing to speak. And this is a man who doesn't speak much. So mm. I said, I'm not going to be the guy to stop Dr. Dre from speaking. Hmm. So, and that's kind of why I did it, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. And, and then it was left to you to get them talking and to, to put this together. When you started to conceptualize that, what was the through line? What, what for you, what was, what was the story? I want to know all these answers as well. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I, I knew, you know, it's, it's interesting when you're making a documentary or even a film and someone's not been on film before, like Jimmy, you're taking a, a leap of faith that they're going to translate because mm. if someone's a rock star in the room, which Jimmy was in the room, but I also knew I can, you know, I'm pretty good at winding Jimmy up and getting him going. And Jimmy is focused. Once he gets focused on something, he's on it. So that was the X factor that I was excited about was bringing Jimmy up. Jimmy's always mm -hmm. existed behind that curtain. Yeah. Um, so everyone thinks they know Dre, and they, they really don't either. You know, so what we would do in the editing room was we would do little things like, okay, Jimmy's the godfather, and Dre's Michael Corleone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jimmy's the cat and Dre's the dog. You know, we the do only little... good about that is that I get killed in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to do the second one. And and, uh, and we did that in, in in reference to Michael obviously was in the military and wasn't going to go into the family business. Dre is an artist and was not going to become a businessman. And through his relationship with Jimmy, he learned to become a businessman. That was mm. kind of the things. We're trying to find the through lines, you know. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the many things, you know. Well, yeah, and, and one of the things that interests me, because you've said some great things about documentaries and about how people, you know, look at documentaries like they need to eat their vegetables or, you know, whatever. Not the most exciting thing in the world. And how do you, how do you change that perception? But before I get there, you know, one of, the, one of the things that you've always been very successful at is identifying people with whom you can collaborate successfully. You know, they're, they're, for whatever reason... You're leaving one word out. 
great people. Great <laughs> people. Fair enough. Because I can't Fair. do it. I'm, I need great people to do anything. So, the, que- so the question is, what did you see in him? You know, I just, Alan, I loved Alan from when he was a kid, right? I mean, like I said, I, I finance an American pimp. You know, it's why? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but then I, I gave him a record label. Right, this is a guy that I've stuck with. Right? <laughs> so, so he came to me and he said, "I've got." I, I, I said, "Alan, do Dre." I said, "Everything else is boring, right?" He said, "No, the, the, the story is your relationship with Dr. Dre. It's a white and a black. This is what he said to me. It's a white and a black guy that come from racially challenged neighborhoods that are forced to face their fears from those neighborhoods in each other." And have to get over it. And I said, oh, that's an idea. Hmm. You know, and I'm hmm. always attracted to ideas. I, I you know, I, I like specific, very good ideas. And uh, a person could be an idea. You know, America was an idea. Things that are ideas, yeah. you know. And he had, he had an idea, which hmm. is more than most people have that come in my office. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that you give record deals to. Um, John Landau said you have to learn, you know, as a manager, that it's not about you. That's right. And, and that seems to be something that you, you developed an understanding about that very early on. And, well, and that's, that's the key to, if I have any kind of outside of luck, if I have anything, it's that. I just, uh, and no one learns that. You know, you, you, they have a hit record. And they breathe their own exhaust, and they get all pumped up. And when I have a hit record or something that's successful, whether it be beats, my thing is abject terror. And Mm -hmm. why that is, because I'm like, if the thing isn't a hit, I feel horrible. And if the thing is a hit, I feel horrible because I feel like the next thing's not going to be a hit. So, you know, um, and... I feel that it's not about me. It's about the project. It's about the everybody involved in it. So I never felt, I've never taken a victory lap in my life. I've never had a gold record. I don't, you know, I, you know, I don't, you know, somebody melts them. <laughs> but I never did anything like that. And I still, I just, I don't have a rearview mirror where this kind of stuff is concerned. Mm. I, I just don't. And I learned it from Landau. Landau, because yeah. I wasn't, believe me, I thought it was about me because in my house when I was growing up, I grew up in an Italian house with my mother, my sister, my aunt, and two cousins. They were all women. And they just treated me like a prince, right? So we didn't have a lot, but we had great service. <laughs> <laughs> I would come home to I would come to Not sure you can say that anymore, but that's okay. I, I guess I said it about my, my, my sister. True enough. I said it about my sister. Well, your grandmother, too. <laughs> my, and my grandmother. I would come home, and there would be spaghetti at three o'clock in the morning or because I was the baby of the family and they just took great care. So anyway, so I thought it was all about me, right? <laughs> great. <laughs> let's put it this way. Forget service. Great love. Yeah, okay. Right. So I, what happened was, I think it's a very, it's a very good lesson for anybody who wants to do something is I was trying to get Springsteen's drum sound, which you guys just watched. And I was stuck and it was going on for three, six weeks, whatever. And little Steven there was a guy, that's not in the movie, but there was a guy from New Jersey who, like, when you're growing up and you're, like, 21 years old, you have other people at a competition from different studios and all that kind of nonsense. Oh, he's the guy from New Jersey, and I was working at the record plant. There was a guy at Media Sound, and 
all guys that are coming up that you think you're in competition with. So Steven said, let's bring this guy in from New Jersey. Look at the drum sound. And that's where I went to Lando. And I said, Lando, I quit. Fuck this. Fuck that. You know, uh, why? You know, and he looked at me and he said, hey, man, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not about you. Hmm. And I said, is that possible? (laughs) 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 You know, and uh, it stuck. And and why that little story is important is because it taught me to have information and when I trusted someone or I thought they were smart, to take their input no matter how high I was. You know what I mean? No matter how in my own head or whatever I was, I will stop. I'll do it today. Like if Geffen calls me or somebody like that, it says, whoa, wait a minute, whoa. I just go, oh, okay, let me let me see. All right. You know, I take advice. And since that day, hmm. like when I had my, my family, they would, you know, I only grew up with my family and my friends in my neighborhood, you know, and my, my cousins, they, we were all just a big family. And I never had these kind of experiences before where somebody was actually say, this is not about you. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but anyway, it was a big thing. And I deal with this every day. I've, I've been doing this now 40 44 years, which is a long time. And I can tell you that I've given this speech to at least, I'm going to be conservative, 500 people, at least, that worked for me over the years. Two or three got it. Hmm. Okay? It is not something that's easy to learn. You think you got it, and then you don't have it. Because every day that goes by, when you get a little more success or you do something, you start getting puffed up. And um, you got to be willing to stop and start again and say, okay, I'm a beginner again. I'm going to learn from scratch right now. And that's a hard thing to do. And I'm blessed because I'm lucky. I got it. There was no greatness in me. I just got that. Mm. So what 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 is it about Dre? When you met Dre... What is it about him that made you want to collaborate with well, him? What it, did you see? <laughs> it was all the guys around him were fantastic uh, guys. No. <laughs> I, could just, I could just possibly walk away from that. Uh, <laughs> well, what, what got me about Dre was I didn't know anything about hip-hop. You know, I didn't understand it. I, uh, I, was, I come out of rock 20 years of producing rock and roll music, you know? And so uh, he and Suge, who was very talented, actually, walked in the room and played me The Chronic with John McClain. And I didn't have uh, an understanding of hip-hop. It all sounded really... I was coming from an engineering background, so it all sounded really muddy with the 808s and samples and everything, and nobody really knew how to control the bottom, so I, I just kept ignoring it because of that. You know, I liked Public Enemy a little bit, but the rest I didn't really understand. And he came in, and I had these speakers from 1976 that I bought in England called Tenoys. <laughs> and I, I still have them. And they're in my office. They were in my office then. And they put on the chronic. And I said, that sounds as good as Pink Floyd sounds on these speakers. Hmm. I said, that this is not like everything else. So I said, who engineered it? And he said, I did. I said, who produced it? He said, I did. I said, holy shit. 
And I, I, I say it in the movie, and I actually said it that day. I said, this guy will define Interscope in 30 seconds. Now, I didn't understand anything else about hip hop. I just knew whoever did that, I want to play with. <laughs> that, and that's how it happened. Yeah. It really was that clean. I, yeah. I, you know. I mean, there really was a bond with you guys in terms of that passion for, for producing, that passion for sound. Yeah. yeah I we, mean, all, all the other business stuff sort of came Well, what happened later. was I got very lucky again. I was a record company executive that came from a recording studio. The recording studio, if anybody here worked in a recording studio, it's a place of service. And what you're there is to make the client happy. You're there to make sure that lunch is on time, they're comfortable, that the tea is right, the studio's right, the microphone's right, the headphones sound right, the drums sound right. So you're continually of service, right? So I worked at a record company, and most people at the other record companies they weren't of service, <laughs> okay? <laughs> they thought, you know, most record companies think it's them. I knew it wasn't me, right? Because I worked in a recording studio. So if you sit next to Bruce Springsteen and he's singing Born to Run, you know you can't do that, <laughs> right? Whereas if you come up as an executive promotion, you have no idea about the magic of it. You think you know, but you don't know in your soul. So that's kind of where I was coming out of it with Interscope. And so when I met Dre, I was like, this guy just needs to be nurtured and, hmm. you know, and, and, and it'll go. Yeah. Alan, you, you came up and, and had an interesting experience. You spent some time with Easy e mm -hmm. when you were young. And I'm, talk a little bit about, I think there was a summer or two spent kind of hanging, hanging around. The, but you learned a lot during that time. Talk a little bit about. It was like that movie, My Week with Marilyn. Uh. <laughs> but it was my summer with Easy e uh, He picked me up every day. And me and my brother were nobodies. My brother lasted about a week, and then it, it was just me and Easy. He taught me a lot about like concept and theme and identifying. By the way, not literally telling me, just mm. watching him operate. Yeah, identifying what's different about you, what's unique about you, and leveraging that, and like um, separating yourself from the pack. So when you look at those NWA records, obviously Dre was a sonic genius. I mean, that's just clear from day one, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. But Easy was the thematic concept guy. And he was really great at like uh, mythology as well. He would put little uh, demonic whispers on those records and talk about devil worship, which is a big taboo in the black community. Hmm. I don't know about the white community, but. <laughs> 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 he would have a skateboard and act like he was a skateboarder. He did skateboard. Back then, black kids didn't skateboard. skateboard. So he knew, he understood these little things and I just picked him up and, and the way he dealt with his fans in the street, Everything about him, he was easy. He was mm. very laid back. He was uh, comical. Uh, but he was a, a... Jimmy reminds me... They remind me of each other a little bit. Huh. Because they're, they, they're, they're, they're marketing geniuses, though. You know, like, they really get what... Same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, I think, I think Jimmy's a more uh, refined version in that, in that mm. aspect, you know. Um, he got he got Dre in the same way Easy got Dre, but Easy's ego got in the way. Mm. That's what well, separates. Easy was an I, I never met exactly. Easy. Somebody told me I had lunch with him, but I don't remember. And uh, but <laughs> he, I really don't. I really don't. <laughs> and um, but he was an artist. Two yeah, artists are gonna. Was an artist. Two artists are gonna go at it with each other. You know, yeah. there's, there's no no artist wants another artist to do better than them. <laughs> okay. There's but he also was. Keep in mind, he wasn't an artist to begin with. He was a street cat. Mm. 
and Drake created this artist from scratch. So that was a, is a head fuck. Yeah. You know. There's a quote of yours that I read that, that I want to get your, your comment on. You said, the thing about hip-hop is the line between just being completely corny and being completely cool is thin. Very thin. Explain that a little bit. <laughs> I, don't know how, how I mean, to, how do you walk that line? It's a, I don't know how to explain that. You know, it's like uh, in the black culture, there's a, there's a hipness and people look to it for that. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, there's that, there's that thing in music too because hip hop is so colorful and so dynamic. And hip hop, you can do country hip hop. Mm-hmm. You can do conscious hip hop. So you can do real corny shit real quick as well. You know, I mean, just, you can go into any lane on like rock, you know. Yeah. I don't know how to explain what that what, what I meant by that, but I know every year there's some really corny records to come out. Mm. <laughs> but you know it when you hear it. Yeah. 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 You know what it is, is that because unlike rock or uh, jazz or whatever, a lot of these people are not all hip hop artists, but they're talking a lot of shit. Mm. So yeah. that can get real corny. Well, real there's quick. a lot of that in rock music. Yeah. Example, the 80s, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The, as, uh, as a, a lot decade, of corny as a, shit. As a decade. Yeah. I was with, I was, uh, I'm going to bring up someone who's passed recently who was somebody I loved dearly, who was an incredibly funny guy. And, uh, but it was in 1982. He came over my breakfast, over my house for breakfast because we had to be at some lawyer or something like that. It was Tom Petty. And he was, he was rolling a joint and I had a little TV in my kitchen and MTV was on. So it was 82, 83, mm-hmm. right? And he said, um, so, I mean, do you watch this MTV? I said, uh, it's on. I mean, you know, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, we work a lot. I don't get to see it. He goes, now you see these guys here? And there was one of those hair bands, right? And he said, this stuff is like wrestling. I said, why is it like wrestling? He goes, kids know it's fake, but they watch it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, a tip of the hat to Tom Petty. Yeah. But um, the fascinating I- thing... <laughs> Isn't he the greatest? Oh my God, I, I felt so, I feel horrible about this. But anyway, um, great thing about Easy and Dre is Easy was a star. Absolutely. And Dre spotted a star from a guy who was a drug dealer, yep. didn't even rap. And Easy instinctively knew what Dre could do. Yeah, he did. Had no experience in music. And that, that's a miracle right there. You know, that's but, a miracle. But the greatest, the greatest hustlers and drug dealers are great marketing men. Mm. And yeah. it was no mistake. He was a great marketing man. Yeah. You know, you managed, you managed to get these guys talking and, and really about some things that frankly, I don't think you've spent a lot of time talking in, in public about, and I don't think Dre has spent a lot of time Mm-mm. talking in public about, and, I, and I'm wondering, how did you, how did you make that happen? How did you get these guys? to? Open it's up? like, it's like any other performer or actor or writer or anything. They had to be ready. I couldn't make them. Yeah, do before shit. we give Alan too much credit, <laughs> exactly. yeah. I couldn't. <laughs> Dre, 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 and I weren't going to do this if it was going to be a bar mitzvah tape. No hagiography. It, yeah. it, we just weren't going to do it. Here's yeah. what we did here, and here's what we did there. And I was like, you know, I said Dre said to me, and I said to him, I said, who the fuck wants to see that? You know? Yeah. And um, so Alan was the right guy because he knew. <laughs> literally maybe where the bodies were buried you know? uh. and uh, so so he would go in and and dre 
led. So I followed Dre. I said, I'm not going to let him go out there on his own. And we just didn't want to. I, I say about mitzvah tape. We all know what that is. We all like kids going to bar mitzvahs. All their friends bar mitzvahs. I'm Catholic, but I I, I know what a bar mitzvah is. <laughs> and I know what the tape. All I know is my kids who are Catholic always want a bar mitzvah tape at 13 years old. And we don't have bar mitzvahs. I want a bar mitzvah tape. <laughs> But there's been some documentaries out in the last few yes. years that are my mitzvah tapes, okay? And um, we didn't want that, you know? And uh, because you know why? We wouldn't watch it. Yeah. We wouldn't watch it if, the, if, if there wasn't the why. You know, I wanted people, if, if we were going to do anything like this, I'd have no idea it was going to be as successful as it was, and we're very lucky that it was. But I wanted people to understand what, what the why that we did all those things, the why those things happened. And I there's, think that's important rather than the what. Sure. There's okay, also, you know. there's also though, like me having known them both for that long, there's just dynamics between in that relationship that mm -hmm. I understood. That you understood. I understood, yeah. you know, and I don't know if a, an average director would have known those things. Mm. And I've heard stories from Jimmy over the years, years and years and years. So there was, all, I knew the stories, mm. you know. Although it was a lot easier saying those stories in your office than it is on a camera. Yeah. It, it, it is. Yeah. But Jimmy, and I discovered something about Jimmy. I know how to wind him up. <laughs> if you if you can wind, Jimmy's a, a very like in the moment guy. He, he can't fake it. He can't tell a story. Someone will say, tell that story. If he doesn't feel it, he can't yeah, tell yeah. it. You know, and I, I can identify. Did with you that. know he was winding you up? Um, no, because once you put the quarter in, you get the whole ride. <laughs> <laughs> There's no getting off in the middle. <laughs> you, know? you know, you also said you wanted you wanted people to know how it felt, to know what going through your life here, and that it wasn't always pretty. Well, because I, I, I don't know. Maybe I did somewhere enjoy one day of it, uh, you know, over the 40 years. But it was always painful. You know, it just was. And I had a lot of fun. Like, you know, you work with Bruce Springsteen. He's a funny guy. He's a great time. We had a great time. But it was very painful. So, you know, in the evening, maybe, you know, you go to um, Umberto's Clam House with Little Steven. You know, you do something fun. But there's this overhanging thing of trying to do something great. And um, if what the doc, if what a documentary is, is, I did this, that was great, and I did that, that was great, then I did this, that was great. I mean, it's kind of like row, row, row your boat, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, you know, what strikes me, and this may be true of, of lots of people who, who are innovative in what they do, there may be a fear of failure, but there's mo it's more about the fear of failing to try. And that seems to be where you... Let me, let me, let me I think it confused me. Let me. <laughs> a, a, a fear of failure versus... That fear of you know never having actually tried. In well, that's a, that thing you're talking about is the fear of failure, right? The thing is, what, what the fear of failure does it stops you from trying, right? So the thing about the documentary, which is what I learned, I remember when I learned that I was 20 years old, and I was the guy in little league who would sit out. In right field, I was down there in right field, of course, right? <laughs> you, didn't even need a, you didn't even need a glove in right field. <laughs> um, I'm sitting out there and I'm saying, oh my God, this guy's a left-hander. I hope he doesn't hit the fucking ball to me. <laughs> that, that's who I was growing up until I got to the record plant. And then all of a sudden, 
I can't explain it. It's like magical. This feeling of fear empowered me. The more frightened I'd get, the more I'd move forward in the recording studio. Now, in Little League, I pitched one year. I started crying as I was pitching, you know. <laughs> and my father was a longshoreman, and I started walking off the mound, and he went like this. But, you know, my whole life was not based on that lack of fear. But as soon as I got into the recording studio, for some reason, that fear turned into a tailwind. Hmm. And it pushed me forward, and it still does today. And the more frightened I get, the more excited I get. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about, um, uh, there's got to be things that ended up not making the film. And, uh, and I'm wondering if there were a scene or two or three that were really hard to let go of, but yet, for whatever reason, you had to. This is the first time in my career where, no, I, I don't regret one. There's one that um, was released recently where Jimmy goes through the whole struggle on Born to Run and has to master that. What is it? Put it on wax and take it to Bruce in some far-flung area, and Bruce is in a motel, and they listen to it at a stereo store, come back, and Bruce throws the record in the pool and wants to start from scratch, Born to Run. That was a devastating story. It was a great story. That was story. the first time I took Valium. <laughs> <laughs> I had a guy... <laughs> Uh, well, it was, because there was a guy named Jerry the Cat that I grew up with, because, you know, I never want to go anywhere on my own, so I told this guy, we were going to Washington, we were going to see him in Baltimore, so he said, take the train with me, I've got to go see Springsteen and play him this record, so he came to me, and he was the guy that did, you always have a best friend that takes a lot of drugs, right? I mean, we all do, right? <laughs> so his, his name was Jerry the Cat, and he used to have a, either a jo Jerry the Cat, right? And, and he had a bottle of Valium with me. So I, I went back on the train and I said, I am dead. This is, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm going to get thrown out of the record business. I, I can't imagine what's going to happen. He said, take this. <laughs> you know, I almost woke up in Pennsylvania, but, uh, <laughs> but I did. It's the first time I ever took Valium. Now that wasn't a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Yeah. But because the, the Bruce Springsteen stuff was so... Tough. Right. It was like one more, it was a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. You know, it seems like everyone that you could possibly have wanted to interview, you got in this movie. I mean, you know, Bono, Lady Gaga, Patti Smith, Springsteen, Trent Reznor, Puff Daddy, Gwen Stefani, Snoop, Tom Petty, Kendrick, Stevie Nicks. Michael Fuchs. Michael Fuchs. <laughs> good times. I mean, it's, was there anyone you couldn't get? Yeah, it was one, uh, Lennon, John Lennon. Well, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, was it. No, it was really, I got to say, between Jimmy and Dre and what people, I guess, knew what it was. Yeah. Patti Smith was, was tough because she doesn't, she doesn't do this, but right. eventually she did it, not because we asked, but because she wanted to do it for Jimmy. Jimmy. Yeah. You know, and that, that was what was remarkable, how much love all these people who, who are either currently working with them or hadn't seen them in years still had. Hmm. You know? Dre and I just said to Alan, go get anybody you want. If they like us, they don't like us, they, you know, whatever whatever their feelings are, it's not our business. Go out and get whoever you want to get. And um, that's what he did. Yeah. Were you kind of looking at this as he was making it? Were you reviewing? I saw things to check because, like I said, I was really paranoid. Well, paranoid is unfair. I, mean, I was... Concerned. Somewhere between scared and paranoid. <laughs> 
because you know there were certain things that went on that you know uh, was dangerous yeah. you know and uh, dangerous to other people as uh, besides myself and I didn't mind about myself, but I did mind about the other people. So I wanted to make sure that things were not in there. That was someone else's agenda that was pushing a button that nobody even knew there was a button there. So I wanted to see some of it because of that. It I became... I mean, it, you know, I wouldn't... Let me tell you something, man. If you're concerned about what people are going to say, and I, I think she's a very nice lady and she's the mother of my children, you don't send the guy to interview your ex-wife if you give a shit about what people are going to say about you. Okay? <laughs> 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 so, and uh, she was very nice, although some uh, said a few things that I didn't agree with. But um, <laughs> well, what happened was, I said, I said to the director, "Please don't write this, and, and, and I got to deal with that." Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I said to to Doug Prey, who's a very credible guy, I said, "Look, man, that that's not what happened." He said, "Well, then you're going to have to go on that camera right there, and you're going to have to counter it." I said, man, I'm not going to do that. He goes, well, then stand. So there, there were like 20 things like that, hmm. you know. So did, did you guys, did you guys have disagreements about? Oh, oh, are you yeah. kidding me? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm still recovering from Jimmy right now. <laughs> no, I think what was what was interesting about the dynamic, particularly with me and Jimmy, Dre yeah. was a little different. You know, they're they're obviously different men. Is that there was a technique that you can feel in the film where people are listening to the other interview. Why? Because I, I did want to take and show Jimmy things because the opening of the film with that crip walk and whatever, I had that. Jimmy hadn't seen it. It was the first thing we cut. I go, better take this to see, you know, because I don't know. Like, this is pretty radical. But what we developed was he would tell a story and then I would go interview Stevie Nicks and she would round out another part of the story that he wasn't telling. And then we would go back and get him the. See, the thing yeah, is, yeah. the thing is, and, and that, that, in that particular was a technique. Was, yeah. You know, one of, yeah, one really of the worked. things that Dre and I really have in common is we have a very, very low tolerance to boring. Hmm. Right? So if anything is one second longer than it needs to be or just goes into bullshit, I don't know who hates it more, me or him, you know? <laughs> And so anytime, you know, you see somebody go, oh, man, this is fucking, I don't need a blowjob right now, Alan, you know, <laughs> I don't fucking need it. You know what I'm saying? Like, get the fuck out of there. Get that out of there. No one's going to, no one gives a shit about my aunt. You know what I mean? <laughs> no one gives a flying fuck, okay, about what happened to yeah, me at 17 years old. What? Yeah. I said I was dealing with that. Yeah. You know, I <laughs> I just kept thinking, like, who the fuck's going to, then, then he started with, for, Dre and I insisted, and this is the only time I've ever seen me and Dre really lose a fight. He said, let me tell you, Dre would say, let me tell you something, motherfucker. This thing ain't going to be more than one episode. No fucking way. No fucking way. You tell him. I, I said, you tell him. I told him. I said, okay. <laughs> now, Alan, it's got to be two episodes. I said, Dre, it's got to be two No, no fucking way, man. I'm out. I'm out. Fuck Alan. I'm out. I've, so okay. how'd you get four? Listen, this, it, this, this is the go ahead. This, this is the fucking this is, <laughs> right. So then he goes to three. I said, "Let me tell you something, Alan. My mother was a great woman. Nobody loved me more than my mother. If she came back from the dead, she'd only watch two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and that's how I really felt, you know. And I would, I would argue with him, like, you can't be objective about your own life story. That was the fight. Jimmy, you and Dre, 
you're getting bored about this, you're getting bored, but you don't want... Because you know the story. You know the story, and it's you, you're talking. And the family, to his credit, his family and Liberty, they were really, really championing the things they were seeing. He was as well, but they had to convince him, his family, as well as, well as Drake. It was only because I, I was so paranoid about the stuff I told you about, but I was not paranoid about that, but I was so paranoid about this being a bar misfit tape. I can't tell you. <laughs> It, it's just, I just, I so much rather not do it. Who the hell wants to be on HBO in a parade for yourself? Everyone. You know, yeah. well. <laughs> Everyone. I can't, I can't. But we, you know, we once, you know, the, the fish rots from the whatever, you know. But once I've discovered that about Jimmy, I was like, wow. And I, and I kept pushing with the other subjects, mm. you know, um, the adversaries, the exes, the right, whatever, right. you know, pushing that radical nature because I knew he was game. Well, and, and, so and was also, Dre. I mean, you took on some stuff, the, the D Barnes, mm -hmm. you know, issue, which was very risky. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, to me, that seems like in that particular instance, as a filmmaker, you are really walking out there without a net. I mean, did you have a sense of where that was going? I uh, 100% did, you know, at the time too, while, while, while I'm making this thing, I'm always studying pop culture, mm. and I'm always studying the films that are coming out and being successful at the time in the same medium, whether it was The Jinx or Making of a Murderer, and ultimately OJ. I'm making this film, and those things are coming out yeah. in success. But I'll tell you, man, I'll tell you something. I'll give you a little insight to my, if you, if you can, to my thinking. When that was going down, I was going, fucking great, this movie's over. This ain't happening. So it's going to end this whole fucking project. Well, what yeah. was going on? Yeah. I it was, was just killed. The yeah. Barnes thing. Yeah. I figured yeah. no way does this happen. It's going to kill the whole fucking project. And I get not have to do this anymore. And it's over. And it will. <laughs> so and, I went and, out and got D. Yeah. This decision is going to be made for me. Thank God. It's over. What I, what <laughs> I, what I figured out, though, and, and Jimmy was, and as well as Dre, we were hypersensitive to that issue going in. Mm. We agreed to, we were going to deal with this issue. Is I felt at a certain point, I go, you know, an apology is not an, enough. I, I didn't know D. We have to involve her, not only in the incident, but before the incident happened, she was a part of that culture. She was a vibrant uh, voice in that culture. Yeah. She's an artist in that culture. So why not let her uh, celebrate the glory as she's well? She's mind-blowing yeah. in this film. Yeah, she's she's mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, she really, I think that's my favorite interview. It's just a fantastic interview. I mean, it was just so, there was a few that I really liked, but I really loved hers, and I liked the way Dre handled it, and Alan. I had nothing to do with it. I just just figured I was kidding about what I said about the movies over, but you know, it. Uh, I I knew that was going to be a tough one. Yeah. You know, but there were a lot of tough ones in there. You know, some of them are obvious, and some of them are not so obvious. But there was a lot of tough, tough things in there that um, you know that walked the line mm. that could trigger literally anything. So, fair warning. Going to ask for a couple of questions oh, from great. from the house here. In, in, Can't see in, anybody. Just in a minute, that. we'll get there in a minute. But you know, that, Alan, you know, one of the things you need to to do when, and, and I think you you've talked about this. Here's the Grammys. This music is not theater. This is lighting is not what we're expected to <laughs> to do here. Right? <laughs> we'll 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 turn the house lights up in a minute. But you have to balance kind of the you know the information with you know as we've been talking about with the Dee mm -hmm. Barnes piece with kind of the revelation, mm -hmm. telling people things that they don't. No. Mm -hmm. um, how present was that in your mind as you're, as you're the going The stories behind the stories, yeah. you know. Yeah. That was hyper-present in my mind. But what I was doing during the making of this also is I was showing room of, I would take the 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to a room full of teenagers, to a mm. room full of women, 
hip hop crowd, yeah. rock yeah. crowd. Like I was showing because I it dawned on me at one point we're going from like Easy E's Jerry Curl in the studio to Stevie Nicks, like literally cutting. So you can't take for granted that the hip hop crowd is going to hang around for the Tom Petty stuff, the mm -hmm. Stevie Nicks stuff, mm -hmm. or that the Stevie Nicks people are going to hang around for the NWA stuff. So I had to figure out this alchemy, and that was literally this. The greatest stories win. Yeah. And if grandma don't understand, it's got to go out of the film. So, you know, yeah. a lot of what Dre and, I, Dre and I found to have in common is, and what I wanted to make sure that came across was, we both see in work what's wrong with the thing or what's wrong with it. And I wanted that feeling to come across because, it, you know, yeah, you have a success, but to have something succeed is the baseline. Anything less than that, you want to kill yourself, hmm. right? So that had to come across because that's really what it feels like. You know what I mean? It, just, it really felt that way. So we got, we got time for, for one or two questions from the house. Yes, sir, right there. Hi, uh, my name is Pierre. I'm with the Grammys, of course. I wanted to know, as you did this research for this film and you were doing the interviews, was there anything that shocked you or surprised you Anything you didn't know that just really Personal revelation. Nothing that sticks out like just crazy to me, you know? I mean, listen, when you go into the death row era, you're going to hear a bunch of crazy shit. <laughs> so when I say a bunch, there's like a mountain of shit. Um, yeah, but Alan, I, I think, I, I think in fantasy, the question he's asking no, no. Uh, completely flew over your head. I, I think... <laughs> I think the question he was asking was more about you. See what I was dealing with? And you and you are a different person after this movie. I think a lot of things about yourself you found out in this movie. Uh, Were well, you asking me about the subjects or me? You personally. Okay. Oh, Hello. Ah. <laughs> that was that shocked you or surprised you. It wasn't a singular thing. I think it was accumulation of things that... I was a picture taken of me when I started this thing. I was somewhere with Dre, and I had these little doe eyes, you know? And you look at me now, I don't have those doe eyes anymore. <laughs> and I don't know what to, I can't put my finger on it, but there was a lot, of, a lot of life lessons I was learning, a lot of, particularly with him and with Dre, like just, I didn't realize how much bullshit I was taking on in my life, noise I was listening to while I was creating <laughs> things. I would deal with every, everyone's problems and, these guys really taught me through their actions. Jimmy wouldn't sit me down. I'd just watch them. That was a profound change in my behavior. Like focus. Just focus. That changed my life. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's great. Yes, right here. Um, definitely a master class in Business 101. I learned so much. I wanted to ask Jimmy, what, what about Stop Dragging My Heart that you took from Tom and you felt that it would be better suited for Steve? Well, again, when Tom sang it... Um, it sounded like a blues record to me, you know, and I needed, that's a tool, that's a double-edged sword, that, that song, it's always been a great, but when he says, make a meal some brown, some bright-eyed kid, you need someone to look after you, I felt if a woman said that to me, it would blow my mind. So I felt if Stevie Nicks sang that to anyone in the world, that it would just slay them, you know? And uh, the rest of the lyrics are very male sort of perspective on it. 
And I was always about empowering the women I worked with. I wanted to, I worked with so many women, you know, Alison Moyet, Chrissy Hine, Annie Lennox, like that, what, you know, Stevie Nicks, a lot of great, great, great women. Patty Smith. Strong women, you know, really powerful women. So when I heard that lyric, I said, wow, if she sings that lyric, that could be a hit record. Now, at that moment, when I heard her sing it, I got really excited. So I didn't think, let's put it on both albums. Because I was a kid. I should have, that's what I should have done. But I don't know if I could have convinced Tom to put it on his album. But it didn't end. It ended up on her album. And it was a gigantic, gigantic hit record. And uh, But I always went for women to sound really powerful and strong like because the night you know when a woman sings because the night belongs to lovers that's like that's taking the dominant that's that's you know take me now baby here as i am hold me close try to desire is hunger is the fire i breathe love is a banquet on which we feed right that's like oh shit i wish some girl imagine a girl calling you up and just <laughs> yo <laughs> okay, I'm like, whoa. okay, you know, that's that's better than Match.com. <laughs> so anyway, um, but that's why, man, because I heard that lyric and I just said, wow, she's gonna kill with that. Yes, right there. So uh, you you talk about coming into the studio and you have this fear that maybe it's not gonna work out or maybe the next one's not gonna be as good as the last. How are you able to take that? that fear and just turn it around to create this environment that allows you to uh, have such comfortable relationships with such incredible artists. Well, that, that's really, you know, it's, 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 first of all, you've got to know it's not you. So now when I'm in there, I know that without the other, the person on the other side of the glass, I'm living in Red Hook, Brooklyn. No shit. I do not for one second think that I could write Thunder Road. I can't even read it, okay? So the fear is getting you up to just the level of where you feel you're, you're doing minimum job that you can do to, of what they deserve, right? So I was always of service. I'm still of service. I work at Apple, and people come in that I'm working with. I'm there to help them, you know, beats, every the designer on beats. I'm there to like make him comfortable, you know? So I, I'm an enabler and I, I, I've always looked at my life like that. So the fear is, the fear is on everything. The fear is on the hi-hat sound. Like, oh my God, I'm, I can't, the fucking hi-hat doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound as good as it did on the last time. I did, oh fuck, what am I gonna, you know, it's every fucking inch of it has got you bananas. And, and if you approach it from being of service, it's got a better, you got a better shot. And I, that's why the relationships are still there. Because I believed, I was able to convince them because I think it was true that I cared much, as much about their music as they did. And that was my trick. Because they believed it, and I guess I believed it. Because a lot of times you go into the studio or you work at a record company, and, you know, like they used to send these A&R guys down to my study. Then eventually I became head of a record company. But I would never let an A&R guy down to my sessions. Never, never. Tom Wally, when I met him eventually, because he, 
came to Interscope with us. He said, man, you didn't let me down to the session. I said, I would never let anybody down to the session. He says, why not? I said, because you can't have the right answer. Because if you're sitting in there and I play you a record and you say nothing, I'm fucked. If you say you like it, I'm fucked. If you say you don't like it, I'm fucked. There's nothing that can come good of this. Because you're hearing it through them. And you say, wow, that's the greatest thing in the world, which is what most record company people say. You know, they're full of shit. So now you're like, you're all confused, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, and, um, and then they always say, wow, the drums sound great. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I guess they do. But anyway, <laughs> that's how. <laughs> So we got we got time for one more. Yes, right there. Oh, that's the lady right here. Right oh, three right. times. We'll, both, okay. we'll answer both questions. We'll answer both questions. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll start with you in the back, sir. Yep. Uh, I've seen it multiple times. I loved it. Did you, was it always supposed to be episodic, or was there a longer cut? Always no, episodes, just, or? I always felt from the beginning it was going to be four or five parts, but Jimmy just said what, what the dilemma was. For yeah. two and a half years, Jimmy and Dre... We're not having it. So well, it's because of you and OJ that we don't. Yeah. That's not you don't. You're not getting an Academy Award because it can't. OJ made it so an Academy Award you can't have multiple uh, episodes. Yeah. So Dre and I wanted to be one two hour episode, and you would have yeah. got an Academy Award, but now you're not. <laughs> but you are Grammy See you nominated. At the Emmys. See you at the Emmys. Yeah. Episode five. <laughs> but you but you are Grammy nominated. Yes, right here. Jimmy, what does your next chapter look like? The next one? Good, good, what's your next chapter look like? What's next oh, for you? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, right now I'm at Apple, and um, I know that there's been some uh, stories lately that says that I'm not at Apple, but I am. And, um, you know, I'm 65 years old. I'm going to be 65 in a month or two. And um, I don't see myself like some of my friends and stuff, 75 years old, running record, running around doing music. I don't see myself that way. But eventually I'll be slowing down. But um, I'm so committed to getting streaming right. And right now, to me, streaming fundamentally is a utility. And everybody's so excited and all that. And I feel it's got to be much more whether it's Spotify, Amazon, Apple, you need, it needs to be more. And I'm very driven, and the people at Apple Music are very driven to make it more. We have a roadmap. And uh, I'm very committed to making that leap in streaming to where it's more than a utility. So um, I'm going to do what Eddie and Tim and the guys at Apple need me to do so my next chapter, whatever it is, whatever form or whatever I'm sitting to do it, is going to be helping Apple Music get um, to that place where streaming, not where Apple Music needs to be, where all of streaming needs to be. You see, I'll give you a little bit of the record business, One, my feeling about it right now. You, 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 you put the quarter in. <laughs> okay. So... It's, everyone's going crazy now about streaming. Oh, we're, we're back to First Class and Federal Express, or whatever the hell the record companies do, right? They're all excited. Limousines and First Class. Line. So I don't feel that. And why I don't feel that 
is because, let's go to Netflix. Netflix has a unique catalog because they all buy HBO and Netflix and they all have different catalogs, Hulu, right? And then they have on top of that a little thing called $6 billion in original content. HBO has $3 billion. The, the Amazon probably has $4 billion. Well, guess how much original content music streaming services have? Zero, fundamentally. All the catalogs are exactly the same. Then there's something else, if we're going to the Wizard of Oz, that streaming has, that music has, that Netflix doesn't have, which is free, where you can get anything you want in a very decent way for free, right? So how could you possibly think that those two things are equal? They're not. Right? So streaming and music has to make a leap. And myself and all the people at Apple, remember, Apple is two and a half years old. Everyone keeps saying, Spotify's at 70, Apple's at, we're, the, in, our, we're in our mid to high 30s, wherever we are right now, right? Well, two and a half years. And Spotify's done an incredible job. Daniel, just getting the deals from the guys that we all know in the record business is a fucking miracle. They should put a statue. They should put a Kobe Bryant statue of him outside. Because uh, just for the deal, the first deal he made, and you guys know the people I'm talking about. But two and a half years, you know, and um, the thought of all streaming to me is not complete yet. Everybody's going, well, Jimmy's down on, so I'm not down on streaming. I'm just saying it has to be more in order for it to truly scale and be give the greatest value you could possibly give, and it needs to be more. So I am very committed to that more. And the other thing is, just for what they said in the newspaper, is that my stock vested a long time ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, they said I'm vesting my stock in August or something like that. You know, it's like, ah! You know, I'm, it, it, I'm, we need Donald Trump here to call it fake news. <laughs> But uh, none of that shit's real, and some of it is, but that's not nothing to do with what I think about. I don't think about that shit. So the next chapter, however, whatever I'm doing, whatever intensity I'm working at or not, is going to be about if I can help streaming become the next thing that it needs to become, as far as I'm concerned, to scale. You know? And because what's happening is... What will event, and there's another thing that's happening in the record business that's very, very, very important. So it's only a matter of time before the 60s become the 50s and the 50s become the 40s. And that's, and you'll see the music, how it goes when people like me die off, right? The baby boomer is going to be gone. That means the 60s will be less important than they are now. Another thing is, when you get to the 70s and 80s, especially the 80s, there's a lot of reversions of masters. And a lot of deals were made. Sting, U2, Bruce Springsteen. I can name 20 of them sitting right here. Those old deals, the drifters, and a lot of those old records, the deals are 95 to 5, the label side. Those other deals are 70, 30, 70, you know, 80, 20, the artist side. So that's going to affect the math. So when you get Apple comes on and puts up 30, 40 million subscribers, you're going to see an influx of money. Absolutely. But then the third thing 
What's going on with YouTube? All of us that have kids in here, they tell us about groups we've never heard of because they're on YouTube. So all of a sudden you have an artist who has 5 million views on YouTube who's never met a record company or a lawyer. Well, guess how much leverage that artist has going in to make a deal? And a lot of the new artist deals that are coming out are very draconian on the side of the artist, which I completely applaud. But that's a different dynamic in 20 years from now because what was... Those old deals are going to be replaced by all these new deals. And, and if streaming doesn't become this amazing experience, which it's really good now, but it's not what it needs to be. So the answer to what's the next chapter, if I can contribute to the becoming the next place, I work in space. I don't work in time. I work in when something is done. Whatever my, I don't have a title at Apple. I hang around there. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And I drive everybody nuts. You know, but that's okay. You know, I get on with them, and it's great. But um, I don't know. I could do that at a certain level for the rest of my life. Depends on what... what, I am going to do what they need me to do. And um, that's my commitment. And, you know, I don't... What am I called? What am I going to do? How much am I going to work? I don't know. I'm going to be 65 years old. That sounds like 195 to me. <laughs> you know, and when I was a kid, the mailman, the garbage man, everybody retired at 65. <laughs> <laughs> so that's in my head. Will I retire? I don't know. But I'm, I, I, something's going to change. But it's got no time on it. It's got, a, it's got, a, it's got an accomplishment to it. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got a reason. And I could do it. Look, no one reports to me at Apple, I, but, yet, but yet I somehow involved in running the place. You know, I, I just, I bring my energy to it, and they, they love that. They accept that, and they're great about it. So I, know, I answered the question like this because of what just went on last week. I mean, it was just so insane. Every, you know, I don't know, I don't know how that story got written. It's so bizarre. It's, um, you know... My stock, I'm leaving because my stock vest in August. My stock invested a long time ago. I'm very, very well off. Thank God. I, I got really lucky. I can afford to say because of where I come from. And, um, and you know, it's, it's all bullshit. But, you know, I, I mean, but my contract is up in August. But here's the funny thing. I don't have a contract. So, you know, <laughs> you know, I have a deal. And certain things happen along that deal, but uh, I mean, I have a contract. I guess you could call it a contract, but uh, you know, my deal ends in August, and but we're talking about stuff. You and opened up Pandora's box. Oh boy! <laughs> Whoa! But I don't know. You know, I mean, the bottom line is, I'm so loyal to the guys at Apple. I love Apple, but but I really love musicians, and streaming is not there yet, hmm. and that's why that article annoyed me. They usually don't annoy me, but that one annoyed me because it had nothing to do with reality. It had to do with because something's a lot of money to someone, they push that on you. You know, I it's got nothing to do with it. So anyway, that was a great question. Well, that we're question. here's here's what we're hoping. Whenever that next chapter is, that you'll come back. And talk and talk right, more about episode it. Episode five. How about that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? Give it up for Alan Hughes and Jimmy Ivey. 
I will tell you that shortly after the conversation, I spent a good deal of time talking to friends and colleagues about the idea of being of service. Listening to Jimmy Iovine tell that story completely flipped the script for me and proved that humanity and humility can be a path to success in any field you choose. So that's your required listening for today. We'll be here twice a week, every week. Find us wherever fine podcasts are heard. Also, if you plan to be in Los Angeles, I hope you'll come visit us at the Grammy Museum. You can go to our website at grammymuseum.org for all the information on our activities, our exhibits, and our programs. Now, I'd love to keep the conversation going, so feel free to hit us up on all the social platforms at Grammy Museum. Finally, thanks to the team that makes required listening happen. Jason James, Justin Joseph, Lynn Sheridan, Jim Canella, Kittrick Kearns, Miranda Moore, Jason Hoke, Nick Stumpf, and the entire team at How Stuff Works. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Scott Goldman.